Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Okay, our speaker this evening was ordained in 1996 when he finished his Master's of Arts degree at the Angelicum in Rome. He has served various assignments for the Diocese of Arlington at St. Bernadette's in Springfield, St. Patrick's in Fredericksburg, St. Rita's in Alexandria, and as pastor of St. John the Beloved in McLean. He currently serves at the, as the Episcopal Vicar for Clergy. In addition to publishing many articles and speaking for many groups, Father Scalia serves as the chairman of the Board of Directors for Courage Ministries. He also recently uh, just put out a book, That Nothing May Be Lost, Reflections on Catholic Doctrine and Devotion, and just came out in March, right? In March. So we obviously highly encourage that. I know some of you have brought a copy with you tonight. Uh, but most importantly, Father Scalia is a member of the Institute's Board of Advisors, has given numerous and extremely popular lectures for us. Um, and we're just so pleased to welcome back such a wonderful priest and a great friend uh, to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please welcome me in, in joining Father Scalia. Let's uh, begin our time together with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God and Father, on this feast of Christ the King, we ask that you bestow your Spirit upon us abundantly to settle our hearts, to focus our minds, dispose us to receive your truth, and to respond faithfully to your will, that in all things we will advance the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of peace and love that the world so desires and so needs. We ask this invoking the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, our mother and our queen of St. Joseph, her most chaste spouse. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, because I'm completely intemperate, uh, I have to, well, first... Uh, recommend uh, Dr. Matthew Meehan and uh, his, uh, his seminar, because he's a friend, and I should probably do that for him. Um, but uh, more than that, I think he's, he's a very good teacher, and so I think it'd be a great, uh, uh, a great thing to, to attend if you can. And then I just have to laugh. Uh, I've never heard of anybody being, being jazzed up about Ecclesiastes. <laughs> And honestly, it's just, it's only the Irish temperament that, that, that could get like really excited about what is the most like pessimistic and the darkest book in, in, in all of scripture. <laughs> well, the title for this evening's talk is Reasons for Faith, Motives of Credibility. Uh, and, and this touches on something that is fundamental to man, namely the desire to have a reason for what he believes, it touches also on 
what St. Peter says uh, in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 15, always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. Put differently, why do you believe? This is also kind of a timely topic because Christmas is less than a month away. And with Christmas, as we have also around Easter time, uh, we'll have in, in the press those who are uh, trying to debunk things, right? We'll have the inevitable articles about what really happened and uh, where and when he was really born and or was he ever actually really born uh, and things like that. Uh, it happens every Christmas, every Easter. It's like Christmas and Easter Catholics, you know, comes up, you know, twice a year uh, without fail. But this topic comes down ultimately to whether it is reasonable to believe. And so it's about faith and reason. Is it reasonable to believe? Now, there are two opposing answers given to the question of the relationship between faith and reason. One is that faith has nothing to do with reason. It is just a blind leap. I believe because it is absurd, as the saying goes, uh, inaccurately attributed to Tertullian. Now, the other answer is that reason does not need faith. Because of science in particular, we now know the world so well and so thoroughly that we don't need to rely on the faith that those poor people in the ancient world needed to rely on because they didn't understand things the way we do. They may have been astounded by things, but now we know the causes, and so we don't need that, that faith. Or even worse, it could be that we don't need faith because reason can get us to all of these, uh, all the answers to all the dogmas of faith. We can, we can reason to all of these things. Now, these two answers, these two extremes, are called fideism and rationalism, respectively. In the first Vatican Council, 1869 to 1870, condemned both of them. Uh, the, the Catholic both and was mentioned earlier, right? right? So we condemn both fideism and rationalism, right? Now, I think you can appreciate why it was important for the church to speak on this when she did, um, by the late 19th century. Because by that point, man was in love with his own discoveries, advancements, and theories. He had made gigantic leaps ahead in transportation, communication, uh, medicine, biology, and so on. And since we live in a similarly rapidly advancing age, we can appreciate how the swift scientific advancements also infected theology and the view of faith back then. Man started to believe his own press uh, and thought that the conquests of reason in other fields would apply also to matters of faith. He had conquered so many previously impregnable areas that he thought himself sufficient and no longer in need of faith. This is the same century, by the way, just keep in mind, uh, in which Thomas Jefferson, 
took a blade to the Gospels and cut out all the miracles uh, in order to make it more reasonable. He cut out all of, the, all of the unreasonable things in his estimation. That's rationalism. Of course, the inevitable and predictable response to rationalism is fideism. That's what happens when a believer confuses the abuse of reason with the use of reason. Uh, and so in a response to rationalism, believers would say, well, okay, if that's what reason is, I don't want to have any part of it. Uh, and so he claims that, well, I just believe. And I know things by faith. And there is this, this trivialization, if not outright rejection, of reason. And that, of course, is an attitude that is completely foreign to the Catholic mind. And what fideism looks like in our own day is emotionalism. John Paul II stressed the danger of this in his encyclical Fides et Ratio. He wrote, deprived of reason, faith has stressed feeling and experience and so runs the risk of no longer being a universal proposition. It is an illusion to think that faith tied to weak reasoning might be more penetrating. On the contrary, faith then runs the grave risk of withering into myth or superstition. And this observation by John Paul, uh, let me make note of this right now, it also indicates that the motives of, credi of credibility are extremely important in evangelization. Because if we separate faith and reason, and if we can no longer speak of a reason to believe, then there is no objective standard to which we can appeal in order to convince people that it is, it is good and reasonable to believe. Everything just becomes subjective, how I feel. So Vatican I condemned both these propositions, but it didn't only condemn them. It also defended the unity of faith and reason. And it clarified how the church thinks about their relationship. And it's in this regard that Vatican I proposed what we call, what current catechism terms, the motives of credibility. That is, rational grounds for making the act of faith. Reasons for believing. Now, before we get into the motives themselves, let me make uh, a few clarifications. First, these are motives. They're not proofs. They're not proofs of the existence of God, and they're certainly not proofs of the dogmas of our faith or the articles of faith. If something can be proven, then faith is not necessary, right? Faith is, as the letter to the Hebrew says, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not the acceptance of things that have been proven. So proofs exist in the realm of the physical sciences, but when we speak about faith, we don't speak about proofs, but we can speak about motives. And these are not proofs also because they do not compel belief. 
if you demonstrate a mathematical proof, you kind of compel the person to accept it. Because otherwise, they're, they're going against you know, anything rational. Uh, these motives do not require or compel someone to believe. They are a motive. Two people might witness or hear the same thing, but have completely different reactions. One can take it as a motive for faith and make that act of faith, and the other can look at it and reject it. Second, when we talk about the motives of credibility, we're not speaking about reasoning our way to faith. And sometimes people talk about this, like getting as far as reason can go. And then, and then you know, that kind of inevitably, you're just going to kind of trip into faith, right? Uh, that's not what we're talking about. Reason cannot produce faith. We're talking, they are different in kind, not just in degree. The act of faith is an act of the will prompted by grace to believe in God. It is not just the working of the human intellect. Now, regarding his last two points, let me read you something from St. Thomas Aquinas. Okay. <laughs> As regards man's assent to the things which are faith, we may observe a twofold cause. One of external inducement, such as seeing a miracle or being persuaded by someone to embrace the faith, neither of which is a sufficient cause, since of those who see the same miracle or hear the same sermon, some believe and some do not. Just touched on, but it's St. Thomas pointing out this in the importance of these what he calls external inducements, things that are not subjective, that that I can see and others can see as well, that external to me that are inducement to believe. That's the first cause. Hence we must but but it's insufficient. Hence we must assert another internal cause which moves man inwardly to assent to matters of faith. Science begets, begets and nourishes faith by way of external persuasion, but the chief and proper cause of faith is that which moves man inwardly to assent. Third, these motives center not on the reasonableness of what we believe, but the reasonableness of believing. Remember, faith has two dimensions. There's the content of the faith, like the Depositum Fidei, right? Which is the new title of the new, the new seminar. The deposit of faith, the, the what it is that we believe. And then there's the act of faith, uh, which is the adherence immediately to God. And because of him, accepting everything that he, he has revealed. Apologetics is often aimed at explaining what we believe in such a way that people see that it is reasonable or in accord with reason. Here, however, with the motives of credibility, we're addressing something different, not the reasonableness of the content, but of the act of faith in God. Is it reasonable to make that act of faith? The act of faith is based ultimately, and this is very unpopular. I might offend some people here. 
probably not here, but in the culture. Um, it's ultimately based on authority. Why do we believe anything? We believe on the basis of the authority of someone who's revealed, revealed it to us. So in terms of natural faith, um, by natural faith, I find that the person telling me something, I find that person to be trustworthy, to be an authority. And so I have faith in the natural sense in that person. I believe that person. And that person can be telling me this by, you know, by phone, by email, by a turn signal in traffic, right? Uh, think about that. Every time you drive, you realize this, right? It's an act of faith, right? <laughs> right? Because you are trusting that the person, you know, in the lane next to you is going to stay in the lane next to you, right? You're trusting that the person who's got his turn signal on will actually turn. And what are you doing? You are making an act of faith, naturally speaking, in the authority of that person. And we, we do it all the time, right? You don't go around asking for proofs. You don't stop the guy. Are you really going to turn? Okay. <laughs> now, divine faith is trusting in God himself because he can neither deceive nor be deceived, because he is completely worthy and because of his divine authority. And he reveals that divine authority by certain signs. And his signs uh, are therefore motives of credibility. So what are they? The Catechism states it as follows. Paragraph 156. What moves us to believe is not the fact that revealed truths appear as true and intelligible in the light of our natural reason. This is very important. Very, very important. What I was just mentioning about faith is based on authority. We don't make an act of faith because, gosh, you know, I have studied the church's teaching and I've figured it all out. Let's knock that down, sorry. <laughs> uh, I've figured it all out and it seems reasonable to me and so now I'm going to become Catholic. That actually is not faith. That is coming into agreement with what the Catholic Church teaches. And another way of putting it is, the Catholic Church agrees with me. No, faith is when I say, I believe in God. And because I believe in him, and I trust myself to him, therefore I believe everything that he's revealed. And I don't even know what it is yet. So what moves us to believe is not the fact that revealed truths appear as true and intelligible in the light of our natural reason. We believe because of the authority of God himself who reveals them who can neither deceive nor be deceived. Another way of thinking of God's authority uh, is to know him as trustworthy. He is the author of all things, and as the author, he has authority. The two words are related for a reason. The catechism really, uh, and prior to the, the passage I just read, it says, so that the submission of our faith, that's an ominous sounding phrase, isn't it? The submission of our faith. It's very medieval. Um, so that the submission of our faith might nevertheless be in accordance with reason, 
God willed that external proofs of his revelation should be joined to the internal helps of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so God places some things outside of us um, so that we are given a reason to believe. All the while, he's also giving us the internal help of, of the Holy Spirit. And what are these? Thus, the miracles of Christ and the saints, prophecies, the church's growth and holiness and her fruitfulness and stability are the most certain signs of divine revelation adapted to the intelligence of all. Notice that, to the intelligence of all. So that everyone in the world has access to these signs, these motives of credibility. And that is essential for evangelization. They are motives of credibility which show that the ascent of faith is by no means a blind impulse of the mind. That's a great line from the Catechism. By, our faith is by no means a blind impulse of the mind. It is reasonable to believe. So these three things, these principal motives of credibility, and, and uh, different writers will list you know, more, but uh, really these are the three principal ones. Miracles, prophecies, and the church herself. So first, miracles. The word miracle comes from the Latin for um, uh, to wonder or to amaze, because that's what a miracle does, right? Uh, you, I don't know how many of us have ever witnessed one or heard about one, but we read the Gospels and our Lord uh, makes the lame walk, and people are amazed. Uh, but keep in mind that the purpose of a miracle is not ultimately just to amaze people. It is actually an appeal to reason, not to emotion. So let's consider, first of all, the, the, uh, the miracles that we find in the Old Testament. The Lord appears to Moses in a burning bush, the bush that burns but is not consumed. Here is a miracle that prompts him to say, well, gosh, I should probably take off my shoes or my sandals, right? It, it, he's acting in accord with reason. He's not just amazed by it. He is now going to trust uh, this voice from the burning bush. And then when he kind of shows himself less than uh, swift to trust completely, uh, what does the Lord do there? He, he, sa he says to Moses, what's in your hand? Moses says a rod, and then the rod turns into a snake, <laughs> and Moses, quite reasonably, uh, backs off, <laughs> and then the Lord instructs him, take, take the snake in hand, and he does, and it turns into a rod again. Now, this is something that is done by a more than human power. This is a revelation of divine authority. The, the working of this miracle is showing someone who has authority to do that and therefore is worthy of trust. And this is, this is what happens throughout the Exodus. All of the plagues in Egypt are a way of God showing his divine authority, and, and in particular showing his divine authority against the so-called gods of Egypt, uh, most especially the Pharaoh. And then, of course, uh, 
throughout the Exodus, you, um, the Lord kind of rebukes the Israelites again and again and again for not trusting him and not remembering what he had done. And it kind of, sometimes it can sound like a guilt trip, like the Lord is saying, gosh, after all the things I've done for you, this is how you treat me? Um, but what we should really hear in, in, in when our Lord rebukes them that way is that he is reminding them of his trustworthiness, of his authority, and the corresponding unreasonableness and danger of not heeding his authority. And so the Ten Commandments begin with what? Actually, not a commandment, do they? The Ten Commandments begin simply with a reminder of what God has done. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, contained in that is an implicit reminder of all the miracles that he worked. The plagues, uh, passing through the Red Sea, water from the rock, quails in the desert, and so on. In other words, all of those things that he did to show his authority and therefore his trustfulness, his trustworthiness. Another example from the Old Testament, uh, Elijah. And don't have time to, to get into it in detail, but uh, in 1 Kings 18, when Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal, and, and, and he scolds the people, he says, you know, you're, you're trying to split the difference between the Lord and, and, this, and this false god. How long are you going to keep doing this? Let's have a contest. Let's each of us, you know, uh, sacrifice a bull, and we'll pray to our, you pray to your God, I'll pray to mine. And whichever God answers is a true God. And they don't say, well, that's kind of, that doesn't make sense. Why don't we have a theological debate? <laughs> they accept this. They say, yes, okay. They, they, they accept ahead of time the motive of credibility. The one who perform, performs this miracle is worthy of our faith. And, of course, the Lord answers, and the pagan God does not. And when we come into the New Testament, what we have to keep in mind, when our Lord is speaking with the Jews, he's speaking with the people who've been steeped in this expectation of miracles. Because the Lord has, has continually reminded them of the mighty works he did for them. And so when John the Baptist sends his disciples to our Lord, say, uh, some have called it John the Baptist's vocation crisis because it, it does kind of sound a little funny. He sends his disciples and says to, our, say to our Lord, are you the one who is to come or should we, shall we look for another? Uh, and what is the response that our Lord gives? Go and tell John what you hear and see. And then a list of miracles. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. All miraculous. And this is interesting, especially in light of today's gospel. And the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. In other words, who sees in these miracles a revelation of my divine authority. The entire structure of Matthew's gospel, if you're familiar with it, is just one account of our Lord teaching, and then accounts of miracles. Teachings, miracles. Teachings, miracles. Because the miracles confirm the authority of the teacher. The great, what, greatest example of this uh, in the Synoptic Gospels in, in Mark is the paralytic. You know, when they climb up on the roof and they remove the tiles and they lower the paralytic down. And our Lord says, one of the funniest lines in Scripture, 
child, your sins are forgiven, which was wonderful, but that's not what the paralytic came for, right? And he's probably thinking, well, thank you, but... Um... <laughs> and then, of course, uh, he's being condemned by um, the scribes and Pharisees there. And Mark tells us, Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question thus in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up, your, rise up, rise, take up your pallet and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, take up your pallet and go home. Here he's connecting his words and his actions. The miracle shows the authority of the one who is teaching. They can trust his word because now he's performed a miracle that, well, reveals that he is God, in effect. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went, home, went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. It's always struck me as kind of a funny conclusion to the whole scene. Um, but we have to understand it or hear it properly. It's not, it's not that they went back and said, wow, that was really amazing. You know, wait till I tell my friends what I saw today. No, it's rather, it's an acknowledgement of a power and therefore of an authority that ought to be trusted. That is why they're so amazed. And it resembles the reaction the, that the apostles have when um, our Lord stills the storm at sea. And they say, who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? He does that precisely in order to reveal his authority. The Jews expect Jesus to give them motives of credibility. Early in his ministry, uh, our Lord is approached by Nicodemus, who says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So the, the signs in John's gospel are all, all the miracles. John chapter 6, in particular, is a long discussion. You know, it's the, the feeding of the, uh, of the crowds of the loaves and fish, and then walking on the water, and then the, the discourse on the Eucharist, the bread of life discourse in Capernaum. And it's really kind of a long discourse about uh, the signs that our Lord works. And when they come and they approach him in Capernaum, he says to them, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. <laughs> You're looking for me for the wrong reason. You, you, gotta, you, know, you got a full belly. <laughs> but what you should really pay attention to is that I worked this, this miracle, not just so that you could be fed, but so that you will know who I am. And then they said to him, what must we do? to be doing the works of God. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has, whom he has sent. So they said to him, and here's the proper Jewish and therefore Christian attitude, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? There's an expectation of a miracle to confirm who he is. The greatest of these, of course, is our Lord's resurrection. That is the ultimate sign that he gives. And, uh, and notice what happens then. Uh, it's early in our Lord's ministry. He cleanses, uh, he cleanses the temple. And after he does so, 
The Jews then said to him, what sign have you to show us for doing this? By cleansing the temple, he's claiming divine authority. It's, it's, it's a kind of a funny scene. They say, fair enough. What sign will you give for doing this? We're willing to believe you, but you have to, you have, you have to do something to, to show your authority. And then, of course, our Lord says, and we should imagine him sort of pointing to himself, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's the very beginning of John's gospel. He sets the term. He, they, they, they sort of agree on the motive of credibility. Uh, and so when he rises, that confirms that, yes, he has authority over the temple, which means he is the Lord. But, of course, some did not believe, while others did. And miracles have not ceased uh, as a sign of, of uh, as a motive of credibility. Uh, in, in Mark's gospel, when our Lord sends the apostles out at the very end, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. And then he lists all these things that we probably should be careful in trying. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. All of which have been confirmed and, and seen in the history of the church and even within uh, the Acts of the Apostles. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went forth and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that attended it. And so in the Acts of the Apostles, we find Peter and Paul, in particular, working miracles. And that confirms the authority of what they're saying. And still today, Our Lady of Fatima, uh, she told the children ahead of time that in October, I'm going to work a miracle so that everybody will believe. And the miracle is worked uh, in, front, in front of like 70,000 people. Now, that's a motive of credibility. <laughs> and that's something to which everybody can appeal. It's not just a feeling, but people witness this, although they all, not all responded the same way. Uh, the saints, I'll touch on this in a little bit as well, but uh, the saints have to have a miracle, right? Attributed to them. And some of you may have heard me tell the story before, but here at Fairfax Hospital, I years ago went and visited a child there who was uh, not dying, but chronically ill. And just and the doctor said, well, there's nothing we can do. And, it's, and the child's always going to be debilitated in this way. I, can't, I don't know what the illness was. Um, just just uh, an infant, and uh, the parents prayed to Mother Teresa, and everything just cleared up, and the doctors had no, no way of accounting for it, and medically there was no explanation whatsoever. Uh, and so the, the miracles continue in, in the church today. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the ones that uh, actually intrigued a, a friend of mine in high school, uh, my best friend in high school is Jewish, and we have all these religious <coughs> debates, neither of us knew what we were talking about, um, but he was really um, struck by the incorruptibles. Again, that's really hard to explain, why the body of a saint is not decaying. Uh, and that, that is, you know, in our own time, a, a certain motive of credibility. So first, miracles. Second, the prophecies. The way to think about prophecies, they are intellectual miracles. That's the best way to think about them. 
because a physical miracle is performed, can be done only by one who, who has the power, that supernatural divine power to do it. Prophecies are made only by those who have, uh, or through those, it, only made by, by the one who has that divine knowledge of the future. And so, so that it can, can speak to it. And so in the Old Testament, Moses gives instructions in Deuteronomy and says, well, how will you know uh, the, the true prophet, the genuine prophet? He is the one whose prophecies come true. Uh, and we see this uh, worked out throughout, throughout the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, we have hundreds of prophecies about our Lord. Um, Fulton Sheen in The Life of Christ, he says that our Lord is the only person ever pre-announced. And kind of makes sense. If God's going to enter the world, that's such a monumental thing. You should probably let people know about it ahead of time. Um, and then, of course, what our Lord says to the apostles on the road to Emmaus, uh, that speaks to, to the importance of the, of the miracles. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So our Lord... Uh, both fulfilled the prophecies, and he quite deliberately pointed back to them. Now, why these guys didn't write it down, I'll never know. Okay, But he, he quite deliberately pointed back to the prophecies and so that they would then understand them. Again, Fulton Sheen says, the language of prophecy does not have the exactness of mathematics. And so sometimes it needs to be explained exactly how our Lord fulfills them. At this time of year, let me just take one, because we're so short on time, but it is one that we will hear soon. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shale or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, there is a very, very clear prophecy of our Lord. And Matthew, in his first chapter, is a great pains to say, this prophecy is now fulfilled in the birth of Christ of the Virgin Mary. The suffering servant, Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. I'll let you look that up on your own. But it is, you know, this, this sort of curious figure who takes upon himself suffering for our sins. Well, who is this? And that prophecy, of course, is fulfilled in our Lord. Eugenio Zoli, some of you may have heard of him. He was the chief rabbi of Rome during World War II. He converted to Catholicism after the war, and in honor of Pius XII, he took the name, whose given name is Eugenio Pacelli. Uh, the Jewish rabbi took the baptismal name Eugenio. But that passage from Isaiah, the suffering servant, chapters 52, 53, uh, we hear it every Palm Sunday, Good Friday. Those passages were, were um, really what converted him. Because as a Jew, he's looking, he's reading them again and again. Who is this person? And finally, he came to, to see that this prophecy has been fulfilled in Christ. 
And how could that prophecy be so precise? Or, or rather, that Christ fulfills it so precisely indicates his authority. And then our Lord also himself, he prophesies. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. He prophesies his own, his own crucifixion. Miracles, prophecies, and then the church herself. This is what Vatican I says. Even the church itself, because of its marvelous propagation, its exceptional holiness, and inexhaustible fruitfulness in all good works, because of its Catholic unity and invincible stability, is a very great and perpetual motive of credibility and an incontestable witness of its own divine mission. Wow. Now, this might be the most controversial motive, right? <laughs> the church, to say that the church herself is evidence of a divine mission and a divine founding, and by extension of God's authority, of our Lord's authority. Many of us in this room could point to the terrible scoundrels in the church, beginning with many of us in this room. <laughs> uh, how could an institution so rife with sin, scandals, corruption, betrayal, impurity, lies, deceit, you, me. <laughs> How could such an institution be a motive of credibility? Aren't these actually arguments? Isn't the church actually an argument against this with all, all of her, her failings? And don't many people believe, not because of the church, but despite the church? Uh, actually, an acknowledgement of all the church's weakness, her human weakness, actually highlights the, the church as a motive of credibility. Because any other human institution, after 2,000 years of laboring under such human weakness, would have ceased to exist. But the church endures. This has been you know, the, the subject of some jokes, the, 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 the famous story in Boccaccio's uh, Decameron of, of the Jewish businessmen uh, and the Catholic businessmen in Paris and the Catholic businessmen trying to convert the Jew. And then he learns that the Jew's going to Rome on a business trip. He goes, oh no, he's gonna to go to Rome. <laughs> you know, this is a Renaissance. He's, he's gonna see everything down there and he'll never convert. Then he goes to Rome and he comes back and he converts. And, and his reasoning is basically, I'm a businessman. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I know, I, I saw it all and I saw all the bad stuff, but I know that any other institution with all of that would have ceased to exist. Uh, but for some reason, this institution keeps going. You know, most institutions would do well uh, would, and would prosper under Gregory or Leo the Great, Pius XII, or John Paul II. Um, the Catholic Church, the extraordinary thing about the Catholic Church is that it survives not the good people, not the saints, uh, but the scoundrels, there's something there. Now, this is sort of a, a somewhat pessimistic way of putting it, but it does speak to the indefectibility of the church. We should also point out the holiness of the church, which might be another, like, Father, how can you say that? <laughs> but we have holy members called saints. People who lived in this world lived lives like you and I, but 
achieved heroic sanctity. That, remember, that's the requirement for canonization. Canonization is not just, gosh, you know, he was a really good guy. <laughs> so we should name him a saint. I think that's the way a lot of people sort of see it. No, canonization is a statement, an authoritative statement of the church, that this person lived heroic virtue. In other words, that kind of virtue that cannot be explained by mere human reason, that cannot be achieved by mere human effort, that kind of virtue that is the fruit of grace. And we can point to the, uh, the, cons the constancy of the church in her teaching, and especially in times when it would be so easy for the church to fold and not to teach uh, the truth and yet somehow she keeps going. So with those things uh, in mind, I just, I wanna conclude with, um, I guess a warning and an exhortation. So first the warning, based on what I've said about miracles, prophecies in the church, perhaps you have already leapt ahead of me and have, have gone, aha, this is why so many scholars try to convince us that the miracles in the Bible aren't really miracles. We've all heard this, right? You know, it's like, well, they didn't really pass through the Red Sea. What really happened was, or he didn't really multiply the loaves and fish. Uh, just everybody shared. That was the real miracle. Uh, or he didn't really heal the demoniac. It was just, well, it was the, the, the person was sick and he had some medical knowledge somehow. Um, there is a deliberate effort to what they call demythologize scripture and the gospels in particular. Also with prophecies. There's no way Jeremiah and Isaiah could have said those things because they hadn't happened yet. <laughs> but that's kind of the point, right? <laughs> the most absurd example of this is um, when the speaker said, there's no way our Lord could have said those things about his divinity because if he had said those, they would have killed him. <laughs> then from the back of the room, a voice saying, have you read the end of the book? <laughs> so a lot of the modern scholarship is directed at debunking miracles and prophecies which are two essential motives of credibility, things that we can point to and say, how do we explain this unless God is intervening and has the authority to do this and therefore is worthy of our trust? And this explains also why uh, there's so many assaults against the church. The church has always been assaulted, ever since Saul of Tarsus you know, was assaulting the church. To tear down the church because the church herself, again, is a motive of credibility. Her very presence in the world points, well, it reveals the divine mission, and it points to the trustworthiness the, and the authority of God. So that's the warning. Just be in tune to those, those uh, sources that try to debunk these three motives of credibility. And the exhortation is, uh, well, you are members of the body of Christ. And if the church is a motive of credibility, or is to be that for the world, how then must we live? And it, it brings to our attention why it is so gravely wrong to cause scandal 
and to, to have people think um, less of the church by our own words and actions. Uh, if the church is really to shine forth as a, a motive for people to come to belief in the triune God, we have to participate in that. We have to live in a manner worthy of that uh, so that these motives of credibility, which can be a great support and consolation to us, don't end with us, uh, but extend to those in the world so that they may uh, encounter the body of Christ, uh, know of his divine authority, and come to him for salvation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Father. Okay, questions and answers. Who's first? Regarding miracles, um, how does one discern between miracles that are from our God and extraordinary things that may be demonic activity or something else? This is a great question. Uh, how do we how do we discern what are uh, miracles, authentic miracles, worked by God? through his ministers, uh, or directly, um, and what are um, uh, supernatural effects that can be caused by the evil one. So if you remember the scene in um, Exodus, when uh, you know, the, the, the Pharaoh's magicians do some of the same things that, uh, that Moses and, and Aaron do. Um, and well, in our in our own day, this is this is why we, we the, the church is a sure guide in this. Um, uh, the, the church helps us to discern, you know, what is what is real and what is not. Which is why uh, apparitions, for example, uh, we don't we don't say that that is, you know, actual until the church has said yes that you know we've investigated that and and it is not. So, uh, but this is there, there's no I think hard and fast answer to that. Uh, that does that does take take some discretion, and um, and I think consult, consultation with people because they're, they're uh, generally speaking, I don't think the devil works healings, for example, um, but um, but they, he can certainly uh, affect supernatural things that that make people wonder. But uh, w what's going to follow from the wonder is going to be a sense of unease if it's the devil working. And if it's, if it's a genuine miracle from God, what will follow is peace. And so that's one of the fundamental rules of discernment of spirits. So I, I would point to that as well. Uh, and, then, and then the church's authority in, in guiding us in those things. But this, this is a very, very good, good question because the devil is always trying to ape what God does. And if he can mislead us by getting us to think that something is a genuine miracle, he'll do that. Uh, Father, uh, as to the three motives, uh, it seems to me the third one is probably, if you were going to, in a conversation with a non-believer, to be, as the case of the rab Roman, uh, rabbi of, chief rabbi of Rome, it's one that, you know, you can compel belief or convince people, but uh, how do you, how does a non-believer, you, you sort of have to assume belief on the part of a non-believer on the first two. And it, it seems to me it's a little bit... In order to get to the third, you mean? Well, no, just to get to the first two. In other words, you have to believe in miracles to view it as a motive of credibility of faith. Uh, and That's it seems true. to me that with the third one, though, it can lead you to believe the... to accept the other two motives. Yeah. In other words, is there... 
do you make a distinction between the first two and the third? Yeah, I think. Um, well, let's just talk about first of all the the, the miracles and the and sort of a a, uh, a seminal form of faith that that has to be there uh, a willingness, let's say, to believe. I mentioned that in John's Gospel, our Lord, um, you know, it's it's all about the signs that our Lord is working, and that people need to believe because of the signs. But there are some curious lines. First of all, in John's Gospel, when the official comes and begs him to heal his son, our Lord says to him, "Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe." It's interesting. Is that, is that meant as a rebuke or is it just a statement? And I think it's just a statement. But in the in the in the Synoptic Gospels, a similar line is. People come and they ask for a sign. They say, show us a sign. And our Lord says, it is an evil, it is a wicked and perverse generation that seeks a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Like, well, <laughs> you just gave a sign for them, you know? <laughs> so what's the distinction there? And I think it's because uh, those who are demanding a sign were demanding it on their own terms. Our Lord was working signs that they refused to accept. Uh, they wanted it on their own terms. And, you know, it's interesting because poor King Ahaz, he says, I will not ask the Lord for a sign. I will not put him to the test. And you're like, you know what? That's probably a pretty good idea. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, but then he gets rebuked for not asking for it. And, and so there is this, um, this distinction uh, with what attitude are we approaching miracles? Uh, are we receiving them as signs of God's authority uh, and therefore a motive for belief? Or are we chasing after them and like sort of demanding to have them, which is that, that's putting things on our terms. So to your question about sort of a, you know, a, a belief that's necessary beforehand. Yeah, you do need to have like uh, a willingness to believe, to, to say that miracles are, are possible or uh, prophecies are. But then I think there comes a point where there's no other way to explain them. There's no other way to explain a man rising from the dead, not bringing somebody else back to life, but he himself coming back to life. Uh, a priest I knew who worked in the Congregation for Saints in Rome, he did a, an interview, I think it was like ABC News, like 2020 or something, one of those shows. And, uh, and he was describing a miracle worked by one of, the, one of the saints. And the interviewer says, well, that's impossible. <laughs> That's kind of the point. <laughs> so um, I think there is something in us that, that, that uh, I, I, the church answers a human need, the human need for teaching authority. We're always citing authorities. You know, we, we always try to say, says who, right? <laughs> so, well, the church. So I, I think the church exists for that reason and uh, not, not just as what Newman calls the oracle of God, but also because we have a need for that and people actually do desire that. And, and to, 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 to say to them, yes, you, you have found it, it's here. Be a good response. I wanted to know how you'd respond to an argument I've heard that tries to apply Bayesianism to faith, faith, which basically means that you put a probability on anything, and if that probability is high enough, then you make an act of faith. Um, <laughs> where's God in all of that? Yeah, I mean, it's rhetorical. I... Um, <laughs> Um, I don't think we can, we can uh, put, put God, uh, you know, how do you gauge his probability? 
so that that seems a little um, doing things on our own terms. Uh, that, that's what would concern me about that one. Got a question from one of our viewers online. They're wondering if it's a grave matter to point out scandal in the church, how does one go about correcting if they see someone who's 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 scandalizing? What's sort of the sort of practical application? How do they approach it? Well, this gets to, to the to the area of fraternal correction, uh, and and how how do we correct someone who is who is leading others into sin or sinning himself? Um, and it has to be fraternal fraternal first of all, which means that there is some sort of proximity to the person. It's not a complete stranger. You know, you're not going up to random Catholics on the street and say, "Cut that out." Um, <laughs> and uh, and it has to be you know. Uh, it has to be done in charity, obviously. Yeah, speaking with the person individually, first of all, and then trying to bring others, you know, to speak to the person. Do you say, is it grave matter to correct someone? That is what the question yeah. said, it's but not, you can clarify that. No. Yeah. It's not grave matter to correct someone, uh, provided that you're doing it in the, in the proper way. The way to correct someone is not to go on BuzzFeed and, and you know, and announce things, but it, it is to to speak to the person directly. This is, this is what our, our Lord says in the gospel, in, in Matthew's gospel, speak to the person directly. This is something that is severely lacking in the church, is this sense of fraternal correction, the willingness both to, to give it, which I think a lot of us would be willing to, um, <laughs> but, uh, but also the willingness to receive it. Uh, and actually the desire to receive it, the desire to say, gosh, if I'm doing something wrong, I really, want somebody to tell me. I don't want to find out years from now that I've been driving people, you know, out of the church for years. So. Thinking about the prophecies as a motive of credibility and the example of the Old Testament predicting Christ's birth and, and such. Um, I wonder if even today, um, especially thinking of the culture, the news that you hear these days, whether at some point, People might recognize in humane vitae a problem. Could you yeah. comment on that? <laughs> so uh, Paul VI made uh, four uh, predictions, which have, have, have come to be recognized as prophetic. I mean, they, they are prophetic in the broad sense of the term. He said if, if contraception is, is allowed, it will lead to a general lowering of morality. This is 1968. A general lowering of morality man will will lose his respect for woman uh, there will be man will not see any limit to his, the the way he can manipulate his own his own body his own being really here we are and then and then the fourth was governments will not be able to resist uh, using contra forcing contraception on their population as a means of controlling the population like the hhs mandate right can't resist it. Um, were those prophecies? Uh, I think in general terms, yes, but there is a human explanation for that. Uh, because Paul VI was not the, the only person who saw that. And, um, and he, it, it, is, it is prophetic that he, that he announced it, uh, but anybody you know, operating on the level of first principles and with a good, good mind would see, if we accept this, it is going to lead to that. So uh, we have to distinguish prophecies, which are, which are supernatural, from a prophetic witness, 
And we're all called to prophetic witness, right? We're all called, to, which is simply to bear witness to the truth. Okay? But we're not all called to predict the future. I think the previous question was asking, is it grave matter? Because if you correct someone in the church, it could uh, break down the church, you know, in the eyes of someone viewing the church, oh, it right. be less of a motive of credibility. So yes, when would you correct someone? That, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, could it be grave matter to to correct someone and therefore reflect poorly on the church? Well, this is, you know, this is where the internet is just such a rotten thing because you have so many people correcting the other people in the church. Like, well, uh, first of all, I, I'm not sure that everybody should be should be leveling corrections. And secondly, correction is supposed to be made personally, directly. And uh, people make a big thing about the, the dubia that was submitted to, to Pope Francis. Those are, first of all, personal. Or when um, Archbishop Nauman um, corrected uh, Kathleen Sibelius, it was, first of all, personal. It, it wasn't a public act. He approached her directly, said, you advocate abortion, uh, therefore you should not receive Holy Communion. Um, and, and that was personal. It wasn't, um, there was no press, press conference for that or anything. So, yeah, I think a lot of the stuff bouncing around the internet that is just kind of, you know, it's not, it doesn't fall under the category of fraternal correction. It's just complaining. <laughs> and it does, I, I'm afraid it does, it does just sort of reflect poorly on the, on, on the church and, and uh, you never tell anybody out the side of the family what you're thinking, right? Okay, who gets that? Who gets that? All right. <laughs> Got it? <laughs> okay. Um, thank you very much. Good to be with you. Thank you so much, Carl. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.